welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Madden America. This is your host, Ayurdhi Dhar. I am an assistant professor of psychology at the University of West Georgia and a spotlight interviewer for Madden America, our guest today. Uh, we have with us Madden America's very own Justin Carter our lead news editor, who recently became Dr. Justin Carter after completing his doctorate in counseling psychology from the University of Massachusetts, Boston. He's currently serving there as a staff psychologist and I think has a very humanistic and relational orientation in his clinical work. Regular readers and listeners would be well aware of his work here at MIA. So Justin, our Dr. Carter for today, has degrees in both journalism and psychology which I think at least partly gives him his critical lens on psychology. So even though early in his career, he has a long list of publications, something I'm very envious of, over 25 of them already. And uh, Dr. Carter and I met at a conference where he headed our, and organized actually, our whole segment and presented an important piece of writing critiquing the global mental health movement. I knew then we would be friends. His own research is on experiences of psychosocial disability in the global south. And we will talk about that and more. Dr. Carter, welcome to Mad in America. Oh, it's fun to be here. Thanks for having me on the other side of the mic this time. All right. So let's let's jump in. The first question is kind of on a personal note, right? So tell us about your journey here to Mad in America. How did you land up here? And um, has it changed you as a scholar, a clinician, a person? It's a, it's a really interesting question, prompting me to think a little bit about how I've been shaped by my experiences here at MIA over the years. Um, as you mentioned, I, you know, I didn't start off in psychology. I actually didn't have much of an interest in psychology as an academic topic until I'd already finished undergrad and my, my first master's in journalism. Instead, I would say, you know, primarily, um, I've been interested as far back as I can remember in thinking about stories like how stories work internally, how they shape our experience of the world, um, and also ha have had a long-running interest in politics and activism. So that what is what you know initially brought me to do a master's degree in journalism. I wanted to do some investigative reporting, some nonfiction writing, and I think I learned yes, like you said, some important lessons there about how to listen, how to interview, how to listen to stories, and also listen for what's not being said in stories to pay attention to whose stories are being told um, and when and what interests they serve. And I think I brought that, uh, that those, some of those lessons with me. Um, although it was during that time completing my degree in journalism that I was lucky enough to be introduced to a different kind of psychology. So I, I took a class sort of on a whim in humanistic and phenomenological psychology uh, with Dr. Brent Robbins as an elective. I was hooked from the start, really. Uh, I remember sort of going to class and rapidly scribbling notes, um, staying after class, talking to, to Brent uh, for long periods of time, probably when he wanted to get home and or teach another class, buying all the books that he suggested, reading them in my spare time. Uh, when I look back now, I think what grabbed me so much about that is it offered a new way of thinking about myself, a new way of thinking about the world. For me, it was a new way of articulating, exploring the sort of malaise I felt at the time. And humanistic psychology offered a sort of vitality, imagination, possibility, 
at a time when I was starting to worry that the world was pretty stultifying and robotic and algorithmic. So it just so happened that Point Park University had launched a master's program in clinical community psychology. It started right then as I was finishing my journalism degree, and I, I signed up and became part of the first cohort of that um, community psychology master's program. And that was an incredible experience. I mean, uh, the courses brought together existential and phenomenological psychology, critical theory, community-engaged participatory action research, and even literature and literary influences, which spoke to me. I remember reading Kafka and Goethe, for instance, in different classes there. So really different kind of psychology than anything I'd been exposed to before. And I felt like I had a, like an academic home, um, a new way of thinking about myself. I was enthralled. I had, a, I had something I wanted to think about and work on. That's how I initially got into psychology. And then at the time, I was also involved in uh, some groups of student activists across the city of Pittsburgh who were organizing, demonstrating, trying to make our universities more just um, by divesting from fossil fuels, resisting some student debt structures. We also supported adjunct instructor, instructors as they sought to unionize, which they did successfully. But all of that stuff brought us into conflict with our, our university administration. Uh, pretty frequently. Through uh, Dr. Robbins, I began to be participating in the Society for Humanistic Psychology at that time as a master's student. Um, and this is when the APA was uh, coming to terms with, I'll put it that way, their involvement uh, in developing torture procedures for Guantanamo Bay. Um, many humanistic psychologists had been calling attention to that for years. And uh, I was at a meeting about some of those issues. And I was lucky enough to meet Dr. Lisa Cosgrove. Um, and she encouraged me then to apply to her doctoral program at UMass Boston, and later introduced me to uh, Robert Whitaker at Madden America. So I worked here at MIA for a year before I started my doctorate. I reviewed research articles every weekday, writing summaries. And then once I started my program, I wanted to keep it going. But with the demands of the doctoral program, I couldn't do it all. And so I recruited other like-minded friends and colleagues like yourself to join me in writing these summaries. And, and then I'm now even editing them for, I guess, five research items a week for six years now. And then some of our spotlight interviews as well. And you, you asked how, our, how reading all of that and editing all of that research has shaped me. And I think it's a good question. So first, I think I, be, I became aware of a lot of the fault lines in the field. There's so much we don't know about the brain, about consciousness, about how people in their sort of relational and environmental niches become who they are at any given point in time. And being constantly sort of reminded of these big questions through looking at all the fights um, kept me humble, I think, and also in awe at the wonder of it all, um, the complexity of our existence. And they were also fertile, fertile ground for different models, different narratives, major disagreements among experts about what it means to have mental distress or mental illness or a mental disorder and how best to treat that. So I got to kind of, you know, be a participant observer in my role here at Madden America in all of these turf wars, um, all the sort of infighting and posturing that happens over these different models of mental illness, mental distress. And that's been its own sort of education. Um, actually, I think the very first research re review I ever wrote had some sort of critique of cognitive behavioral therapy in it. And I immediately, like day one on the job here at MIA, got a ton of comments and emails from people who were very happy or unhappy with the piece appearing here at MIA for a variety of reasons. You know, everything from 
you know, how dare you critique a form of therapy when it's the only viable alternative we have to big pharma, to people saying, you know, CBT and exposure is a form of thought control or emotional abuse, and your summary didn't go far enough, you know, just kind of all the critique you could get across the board. And it's been a lesson from the start and a constant reminder that these theories and the research that we cover here, you know, they have very real impacts on people's lives. Often people who are in the midst of pretty extreme suffering, and it's not just, you know, intellectually interesting. Uh, These debates have real and immediate impacts on people. And I think I really see that as being one of the major functions of the research news team. Um, Like we break down the wall between the public and service users and and then academic writing on the other, you know, what's in the ivory tower um, or the things that are locked behind paywalls uh, at libraries. We strive to provide plain language summaries of the research that may be of use to people when they're evaluating treatments or when they're even just trying to make sense of questions about why they're feeling what they're feeling. And our research summaries also kind of serve to broaden broaden the discourse and, you know, broaden the narrow mainstream discourse about what mental health is that often gets presented to the public in in more mainstream outlets, I guess. So we emphasize research that is critical of these prevailing theories and treatments, which are often ignored in the mainstream press. And we emphasize the connection between people and their environments, uh, which is, you know, sadly kind of radical these days. we focus on social determinants, people's life experiences, their identities, and how that shapes their mental health. Um, and I think, you know, in doing that, we we sort of kind of brought in the perspective that people might bring when they think about themselves, they think about others, and why they might be suffering, why they might be struggling. Let's get into your scholarship. And first, we will kind of talk about your collaborations with other researchers and thinkers. And the big one, the one I'm sure everybody's interested in, is the DSM, right? Which you've kind of written a lot about different issues with the DSM, and we can do a whole interview on that. So I'm going to narrow it down to what is your biggest critique of the systems of diagnoses that we use? Like you said, there's so much written about diagnosis. There's a lot to talk about here. Um, And the reason that it is sort of like the fault line, it's where the rubber rubber meets the road, right? All these big questions about what does it mean to have a mental illness or what is what is a mental disorder? What does it mean to be in distress? Why do we have madness? Um, how do we conceptualize that? How do we understand the causes and precipitants? Almost all of the debates in the mental health field um, take some sort of position on diagnosis because you have to. So first in my experience at Madden America being, you know, kind of exposed to all these different vantage points, all these different ways of making sense of, of mental distress. And then through, um, my experience with the humanistic psychology division. At the time I was coming in, I talked about earlier the uh, sort of the torture debates, but it was also the time that DSM-5 was just recently released. And the humanistic psychologists had led an open letter campaign um, that really galvanized a lot of support from a lot of professionals to resist, reform, critique the DSM-5. And so I was exposed early and often to, to, to those debates. And I think over the years, I was just always working on it in the background, like in the back of my mind, like how do I make sense of all these different debates? How do I try to synthesize them? My paper that you mentioned, uh, the first textbook chapter with Sarah Kamins, who actually was the person who led the open letter campaign initially for the division. And then my paper on ecological uh, approaches to diagnosis and the conceptual competence approach. That was my attempt to try to find a succinct way of putting all these debates in conversation with one another. For a couple of reasons, I, one, so that uh, professionals could use it as a way of thinking through their position, um, striving for some consistency and also developing a little bit more humility about 
these disorder categories that we use, uh, what we know and what we don't know. Having a little bit more critical consciousness about the different institutions, historical factors that play a role in how we develop these categories. And then also, you know, in thinking through how we could talk about that with clients, um, with patients, with service users in ways that honor their experience and aid them in coming to their own narrative for understanding their experience while off while also trying to be able to hold some consistency, some sense about trajectory treatment, what would be most helpful. Um, I think for me, some of the ones that are under are not talked about enough or maybe not uh, part of the public discourse enough is thinking about how the presentation, the experience of different types of mental distress changes cross-culturally, as your work already shows very, very clearly, um, and also historically. And I think that points to the fact, what, like you said earlier, that the narratives we have available to us profoundly shape our experience. And that over time or cross-culturally, if we have different ways of thinking of it, different concepts available to us, it shifts, you know, not just how we think about ourselves, but how we experience like bodily in an embodied way, our world, what, what's salient to us, what, uh, what we attend to and what we don't. Um, if we think about disorders as discrete categories that exist in nature and then we're just naming them, we miss out on all of that opportunity to think about and encourage people to think about how they're making sense of themselves, how they're making sense of their own story, be curious about their own mental experience, which, you know, is at the heart of psychotherapy. I, I have to mention, um, you know, the work of my mentor, uh, Lisa Cosgrove, on, and along with Robert Whitaker in their book, um, Psychiatry Under the Influence, and, and all of Lisa's scholarship on this, is looking at the institutional players that play a role in shaping how disorders get defined in the DSM. And by that, of course, I mean pharma, funding physicians, um, but I also am talking about special interest groups, um, you know, for instance, uh, PTSD being formulated the way it was uh, or it is now in the DSM-5 has a lot to do with uh, post-Vietnam War veterans advocating for their own best interest uh, to make sure that their symptoms that they were experiencing would be treated and covered uh, by the country that sent them to war. Uh, and the disorder category had to be defined in such a way that uh, PTSD could be a longstanding condition rather than something that if it was longstanding, uh, it was only revealing that they were previously unwell, you know, which was one of the theories beforehand. So there's all these institutional and social players that come into how the disorder is being defined. And we take for granted that symptoms that are listed in the DSM are somehow core symptoms to the experience of that disorder. A lot of research um, suggests, you know, network research looks at, say, for instance, like major depressive disorder and the symptoms that end up being in the DSM-5 have much more to do with, that, with you know, what historically has been included as a definition of depression in the DSM than what's actually consistently reported across people as their experience of depression. Um, so that's another piece. Okay, thank you for that. So let me quickly ask you, you have talked about this psychological model, right? Um, that you said dev would develop cultural, sorry, conceptual com competence. If we did this, if, if we thought about diagnosis like this, so my question to you is, can you tell us, like, if, if we used a more ecological model, what would it look like with a case or a story or a person? Like on ground, what would that look like doing, working with diagnoses in these ways? 
and the idea was to produce a way of thinking about diagnosis that could be turned into a curriculum, uh, could be turned into training for professionals in you know psychology, counseling, social work, psychiatry, um, that would help people on that end of the, di the diagnosis, the ones assigning it, think more critically about when they're using it, how they're using it, and how they're introducing it. And then, you know, subsequent to that, um, some philosophical psychiatrists, uh, Aves Aftab, Scott Waterman, they published a paper on um, training a training model for conceptual competence in psychiatry that I think really advances uh, what, what we were thinking about as well, uh, Dr. Kamens and I, and lays out how you might, you know, try to te teach, teach something like this in a psychiatry residency program or in medical school. So the idea was, you know, our paper was directed at, at, uh, at clinicians and helping them to, you know, develop a little bit more humility and critical consciousness about the disorder categories that they're, that they're utilizing. But then, you know, thinking about what that actually looks like in the room with a person varies for a variety of reasons, right? Depending on who that person is, what they're bringing in, what assumptions they already carry, what narratives, uh, they, how, how attached they are to different, uh, uh, terms that they've heard or, or, or used to um, understand themselves. I think that we're at a point culturally where there are a lot of models of madness circulating rapidly. Uh, we're maybe not super conscious of, of this all the time, but uh, people talk about TikTok on mental health. Um, people talk about Instagram and Twitter and people are integrating different approaches to mental disorder, madness, mental distress that have some fundamentally um, philosophically opposed sort of contradictions built into them. But people are, you know, they're, they're learning about the, the neurodiversity movement. They're learning about DSM definitions of disorder, psychiatric definitions of disorder. There's some, you know, psychotherapeutic ideas out there that are circulating psychoanalytic ideas. Um, and we're all sort of cobbling together a model for ourselves um, to understand our own behavior and the behavior of others, drawing you know probably more than at any other time in our history with this ready access to all these different conceptualizations coming from the side disciplines. I think it's confusing for a lot of people, uh, rightfully so. And there's some risk in that that amid all the uncertainty, we can sort of. Uh, ossify or cling on to something that seems the most concrete. There's also a lot of opportunity. If, if there's a lot of narratives floating around, um, there's more opportunity to think creatively. And so when we don't have adequate scripts, when we don't have an, an obvious answer, we're forced to get creative and sort of be poetic um, in combining and, and creating new language to understand ourselves and other people. And I think that's what we're striving for in psychotherapy and that when somebody brings up the issue of diagnosis, I'm hoping to, to work through it, to talk about it and get to a place where we're creating a new language for that person. That person's creating, we're co-constructing a new language for that person that maybe draws on these, on these different conceptualizations, but for them fits or makes sense uh, or helps them explain something that they've been wondering about for themselves in a way that provides a way forward for them. You know, I just had a baby and a part of having a baby is apparently filling out uh, a million forms that ask you whether you are depressed and make you go through screenings of whether you are depressed over and over and over and over. I know you have written about um, depression screenings. So can you just tell us a little bit about what you found? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this was early on in my, um, 
my doctoral studies with Dr. Cosgrove and, and just being in her research team was a really amazing experience. Um, she stays alert to what's happening in the field. We have our sort of philosophical approach to things, um, but she's very talented empirical scholar as well. And so when things come up that, you know, led to us scratching our head, we'd talk about it in lab and then we'd think about, okay, how can we do an empirical study to really question some of the assumptions that are built into this decision? In 2016, the United States Preventative Services Task Force recommended screening uh, everybody above 13 for major depressive disorder, uh, and you know, especially in the postpartum period for women. And uh, initially, this sounds like pretty benign, right? It's one more, one more piece of paper to fill out. It's a great thing, right? Like, what if you you catch some people that otherwise would have fallen through the cracks, and and you and you are able to provide services and help them through a difficult period of time. Unfortunately, that's not what the evidence suggested. And so what sort of led to the initial head scratching was that Canada and the UK had decided not to implement this. They had looked at the question of um, of mandated screening for depression and decided not to because there wasn't sufficient evidence that it would improve care. Um, but the US decided to do it. So we wondered about this. And so we did a review um, of all of the uh, the research that was available at that time for screening. Uh, we did this in collaboration with uh, Dr. Brett Toms, who is a uh, expert on this topic. And we found that the, you know, as, as others had found that there wasn't evidence uh, that actually implementing these screenings would lead to uh, improved outcomes for patients. And so we might wonder, okay, even if it doesn't lead to improved outcomes, like sort of what's, what's the risk? Well, there are a few risks. Um, and one of the reasons why other countries may, might make different decisions about this is if you have a government healthcare system, you're more cautious about wasting resources. Um, so the false positive problem and the problem of identifying people at risk for a disorder who aren't actually at risk or would be very unlikely of actually developing that condition um, is something that you pay more attention to because you don't want to waste taxpayer dollars on, on, on treating people who don't need treatment. Although the US, obviously, the system is quite different. Um, but so one risk is that we end up treating people who otherwise wouldn't need treatment, which diverts resources away from other other people who might need treatment or distracts, as we talked about earlier, through sort of diagnostic overshadowing from other things that might be going on. But I think one of the things that we really want to emphasize here is that we are not denying that people, you know, especially in the postpartum period, str will struggle, will have depressive symptoms, that that's a common experience, that that's a torturous experience. Uh, and that that suffering isn't real in some way and they don't deserve to, that's not at all what we're arguing, but thinking about, uh, as we spoke a little bit about earlier, what's how to make sure that those people receive the most support they can get. And we didn't find evidence that handing somebody a questionnaire would lead to more support than having a skillful clinician continue to check up on a, a patient who is going through something difficult and doing a clinical interview. In fact, the worry was that by making something into a screening instrument, you actually make it less likely that an individual clinician will have that conversation in a more human, direct way because it's been sort of outsourced to the piece of paper, which makes the decision for you, do I need to talk about this or don't I, and also suggests some possible solutions like, okay, well, this person tested for this, so we need to find them a therapist or we need to put them on an antidepressant. Um, and it provides a sort of concreteness to what's going on that maybe isn't always justified, right? So if somebody takes a PHQ-9, which of course was developed by Pfizer and has a higher false positive rate and screens positive for moderate depression, 
then is, we're more likely to think, okay, this person has depression and this is what we do for depression. If we're having a clinical interview with somebody and they're telling us about how they're struggling and they're worried about their, yeah, they're, they're not feeling the way that they thought they would feel after birth or uh, they don't have a lot of social support or they're nervous about how it's going to impact their relationship or uh, they're having trouble finding food or getting the support, you know, the sort of prepared for a baby in, in the way that, then that points us to other sort of solutions that might actually be more supportive for that person, uh, whether that's therapy or and medication, or that's, um, you know, providing social services, um, talking about you know, couples therapy, maternity leave, again, yeah, it lets the system off the hook in a way. And so we really wanted to, to highlight in our, in our work, both in the empirical work and, and in the sort of uh, papers we published subsequent to that sort of critiquing this model that we weren't advocating for not attending to these women's distress or, or these teenagers distress or what it is, but attending to it in a way that allowed uh, for a broader conceptualization of what might be going on with them and a broader sort of uh, array, a menu of supports um, that might actually make a bigger impact in that person's life. No, uh, absolutely. It's it's exactly what you're saying. It's important to emphasize that we're not saying that, you know, there isn't distress or fear or anxiety or are just a lot of psychological suffering that that can, that might come with, you know, in the postpartum period. I, I remember just being extremely overwhelmed and being worried that, oh, is this postpartum, despite all the critical research I had read on this, but I had to remind myself consistently, like, this is, this is normal, like, it, it makes sense that I'm overwhelmed. Um, but what happens when, again, like you were pointing out, when there is an available narrative that takes away all of these things and says, this is a chemical hormonal imbalance. You have postpartum depression. You can begin to now do this. I can imagine it being really a relief for some people, but also it kind of embeds you into this into this place, right? Into this context. And now this is who you are and this is what you have. And at the same time, without, like you said, without trying to minimize the suffering or the distress of people who are experiencing this. Right. Yeah, screening instruments can be useful, but they can also be sort of marketing instruments for a particular narrative about ourselves. Um, and you know, we've covered we've covered research on screening instruments for years now, and it, there's a number of studies that find negative. They're surprised to find negative. The, the groups that are that are screened for a mental disorder um, have worse outcomes than the control group, and it raises the question of the nocebo effect. Uh, is it is it actually helpful for people who maybe are on who maybe meet criteria according to the criteria as we've developed them and all the problems that we've talked about? Is it is it helpful or harmful for them to start to think about themselves in terms of I might have a mental health problem? Um, and there might be some evidence that it, you know it does more harm than good in those instances. Okay, let's move into your own work, your more recent dissertation research. I know that your dissertation is kind of about psychosocial disability, especially in the global South and people's experience. So first, just tell us a little bit about your research and also a little bit about your experience of doing it. Again, so being in, in sort of Dr. Koskar's lab, we, we were watching things develop in the mental health world and just kind of always asking questions about it. And one of the things we got curious in, about were the, was the, the movement for global mental health. There, so there's a few pieces here. So right, there's a movement for global mental health, and then there's the sort of uh, emerging movement for a human rights-based approach to mental health internationally. And connected to that movement is 
a different identity category, which entails different assumptions about mental distress, known as psychosocial disability, right? And so there are these different pieces at work. And I was curious about how people who were newly coming into the identity or advocating underneath the rubric or umbrella term of psychosocial disability were thinking differently about what it mean, meant to have distress, mental distress or madness, um, and also what the impact was on the movement for global mental health to have people with lived experience increasingly participate in, in research policy practice in the movement for global mental health. So I guess I'll say the movement for global mental health um, really started, you know, officially in 2007 by the Lancet Group for Global Mental Health. Uh, it was a call to kind of scallop coverage of services for mental disorders in all countries across the world with really an emphasis on let's improve care in the low and middle income countries or global south. Um, and, you know, while there's a diversity of viewpoints of people who are connected to that movement and there is, you know, some acknowledgement of, of a need to adapt to context, the thrust of the movement, which has been criticized widely for this, is that we can kind of take all of the sort of conceptual diagnostic and treatment approaches to mental health that we have in the United States and in the West broadly and apply them kind of top down um, in the global south and uh, without really any doing doing really any critical reflexive analysis about what works and what doesn't about how we think about mental health here in the West. Um, it's not like our outcomes are wonderful. Um, so that was sort of what was being critiqued. And, and service users, uh, people with lived experience had been leading this critique uh, and they've published a, a, a lot of literature over the years on making sense of their own experiences of, of madness. Um, the consumer survivor ex-patient uh, body of literature is remarkable and often understudied and, and not paid attention to. And it was able to be ignored by mainstream psychology and psychiatry for, for large periods of time. And that's slowly changing. And part of the reason why that's slowly changing is because with a move towards uh, an understanding of psychosocial disability, there's now le legal frameworks in place through the UN, through the Convention on Rights with People with Disabilities, and through sort of nonprofit and uh, rights-based organizations to demand that people with lived experience are part of the process of developing research practice policy in, you know, in the side disciplines. So suddenly, um, because of the pressure, the sort of nothing about us without us pressure, the movement for global mental health was increase increasingly being pressured or asked to include people with lived experience in, in those processes. And I was curious about what that was like for, for people with lived experience who identified as having a psychosocial disability. So that's sort of how it got started. Uh, my participants were all people who had been had been leaders, really, in different uh, psychosocial disability movements, uh, had been involved in activism for a good deal of time, um, but were coming from different countries, different cultural backgrounds. All of them identified at some point having, uh, or, or the majority having something that was labeled a psychotic experience by mental health professionals. Um, but who had come to make sense of it uh, differently over time. And so I guess like three major takeaways is that people had sort of journeyed through different models of mental health and thought about themselves, you know, initially through a biomedical approach when that's how, when they, that's how they encountered treatment, which they found initially, you know, sometimes helpful, uh, connected them to resources that, that they didn't otherwise have, provided them some um, a narrative for, for making sense of their experience, but over time felt uh, like it was missing things uh, or was actively harmful in some way. 
and that it justified sort of having their rights restricted. Um, they suffered through coercive treatments or inhumane treatments. Uh, and over time became, you know, reformers of the field and then became aware of the Convention on, on Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the CRPD, and started to think about what it would mean to have a psychosocial disability. Um, and what's important to say about psychosocial disability is that the disability framework operates on a social model of disability. So the idea is that disability emerges in an interaction between a person and their environment. So the environment does not make accommodations for the way that that person interacts with the world. And it's that lack of accommodation, that lack of ability to make room for that person in the world that leads to a disability. So the disability isn't inherent in the person, it emerges in the relationship between society and the person. Um, and so this sort of really changed the frame that people were using to make sense of themselves and making f sense of their activism and increasingly led them to push for more uh, so, you know, social determinants approach to mental health. Um, and also a number of, uh, of participants talked about sort of having an aha moment where they started to think of themselves less as a, a somebody who is suffering a deficit, um, but, but instead somebody who was a rights holder was the language that was used that I am. Uh, a person who has rights and that need to be respected and that can make certain demands and make certain asks and speak about my needs to the world in a certain way, um, which they found empowering. Right. I also wonder about, you know, what's the process of, let's say, bringing somebody who identified as some point having a psychosocial disability or whatever it might be. What's the process of getting that person to a table? Like who gets to decide that we will go with this person rather than this person? Participants spoke about the experience of being sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place where their organization or they would be invited to participate in a, in a project. Sometimes they'd be invited from the beginning, which is what's recommended, uh, that you include people in even the brainstorming process of a design or a policy from the beginning and be open to the transformation of that project. Uh, and sometimes they'd be called in at the end to sort of rubber stamp a pretty problematic policy. Uh, and, they, they, and they were, you know, they spoke to feeling like they were being asked to just provide their testimony or just kind of rubber stamp a policy so that the uh, researchers or the policymakers could say we had lived experience input. And they are aware of the, if they turned that down, if they said, no, this is not CRPD compliant, for instance, uh, I'm not going to participate in, in this process, that some researchers and policymakers would shop around. Um, for somebody who would rubber stamp it. Uh, and there's a diversity of perspectives among people that experience with very different philosophical approaches to madness, um, very different political perspectives. Um, there's good work on this. And a lot of this came up in the study as well. I oh, we don't have time to get into all the nuances here, but um, you could shop around and find somebody who maybe say uh, was more friendly to chorus treatment uh, or and, and still claim to have lived experience input. You kind of answered my next question, which was how do service user and survivor moments get movements get like co-opted and consumed into this um, narrative, right? Uh, so let me be more specific. Um, can you think of a, an example or a story? It's an important question, and I want to also bring in the the issue of colonialism, neocolonialism, and race, white supremacy, and all of this. Um, participants in the Global South were consistently aware of the fact that most of the researchers that they were interacting with in the movement for global mental health were Western-based researchers with institutional power, often white, from the U.S., Canada, U.K., and saw that this uh, sort of evangelism of the movement for global mental health 
um, as an extension of colonialism. The idea that uh, the West knows the answers, we have the keys to objective truth, and we're going to advance the rest of the world by providing them the answers and forcing them to use what we use. And so this was part of the co-option as well, is right? Like it matters who is running the programs. Um, so I want to say that one of my participants spoke to this brilliantly. She said, so the movement for global mental health is a, is a, this is her quote, grandchild of the colonialism of 500 years ago. She explained that, uh, quote, in Latin America, we've had dictatorship after dictatorship, extractivism, the United States on top of us, all these military interventions because of that free trade agreements where workers are paid under minimum wage. They have no rights. They count the times they go to the bathroom. They're just horrible conditions. She went on and she said that the movement for global mental health is operating from the same logic as these other policies that were brought to the global south by the global north. It, she's saying it's just a newer manifestation of that white supremacism, egocentric view. We know it. This is a universal truth. We know this and we're going to help you. We're going to bring you to our level. So she made an explicit link between, you know, the global north's extraction of resources through slavery, mining, ongoing exploitation, exploitation of labor in her country and the way the movement for global mental health was operating and treating her as a person with lived experience, um, coming to mine data uh, from her in, in a certain way and pursue their own donor funding and support their academic careers um, on her back. And she told the story of um, developing a peer support uh, group and having that, uh, inviting uh, a researcher to join that group for a period of time to, to see how it was working. And, you know, these sort of peer-led groups have been, you know, particularly for like the Hearing Voices movement and uh, have been instrumental in, in providing spaces for people to make sense of their experiences outside of the dominant narratives around mental health, right? Uh, and so this person who I believe was a psychologist then opened up a peer support group uh, that they led um, and charged money for people to be able to enter it. Uh, and this was infuriating, right? This was a travesty for her. It was a sort of perversion of, of her goals and so uh, of what she was trying to offer the community. And so I think that's a, that's a one version of co-option is sort of, you know, doing the same thing that the people with lived experience are doing, or, you know, ostensibly the same thing, offering peer support or offering a group psychotherapy, um, but doing it, you know, from the perspective of a Western researcher, where of course you have to charge money to get in. And of course you're holding these narratives in your mind about what psychosis is that then influences how the group operates and how safe people feel to be able to explore different explanations. It always amazes me how much people on ground know and how little we listen to them. I had my physiotherapist in India talk about um, withdrawal from benzodiazepines amongst his patients, uh, which nobody else really, psychiatrists in India won't really tell you about that. You know, what happens if you take Xanax for too long? But he knew because his patients, if they had broken their bones were also often kind of really sad about it, were given benzos. And then he saw them having difficulty, like trying to stop those things. So there is just a lot of information on ground amongst people we would otherwise consider not worth listening to in this case. It's like you said, I think there's a lot of possibility right now. Like there's a lot of opportunity because there are so many narratives around mental health that are shifting. Um, there's some you know, big cracks, as you pointed to in the introduction and sort of like narrow chemical imbalance theories of, of mental illness. Um, and, you know, there's been the sustained critique of the DSM um, that the public is becoming more aware of. I think So 
as narratives shift, the forces that we're operating within, the systems that we're operating within are going to try to use that to their advantage. And so we see like people writing about the right wing sort of pick up authoritarian pickup of uh, uh, the chemical imbalance theory. Um, for a long time, critics have pointed out that like the chemical imbalance theory served neoliberalism and served sort of a right wing political agenda because it depoliticized distress in a particular way. And now that we're seeing the serotonin hypothesis and chemical imbalance theory start to fall away, you'll, you'll notice that the right will try to pick that up and use it as justification for defunding uh, mental health treatments or to explain something, you know, turn attention away from uh, gun policy or, or something else, right? And so I think it's important that we keep in mind that like, as we're questioning all these narratives, they're going to consistently be used within these systems that we're in to justify existing injustices. And we want to be, you know, conscious of that and, and, you know, speaking truth to those who would rather manipulate these narratives to serve their own agendas. You're also a clinician, and you are very critical of the way side disciplines kind of deal with people's distress and pain. And I know that you also like follow a humanistic existential, a very relational bend in your clinical practice. Um, how does a humanistic psychologist um, work in a world where the first line of intervention is immediately drug-based treatment? The, the field of psychotherapy is under threat. Um, in the same way that, you know, it's, it's, we're facing the same sort of neoliberal culture um, that wants to push for, it wants to turn psychotherapy into an AI chatbot, right? Um, a set of uh, flowchart responses that will lead to a, a, a corrective thought every time or something, right? And we talked earlier about like, there's a dominant logic that keeps reasserting itself because the underlying, you know, one of the core pieces of the dominant logic is that we are self-contained individual beings uh, that are rational and, and, you know, sort of motivated by our cognitions in some way. Right. And so psychotherapy, you know, is being pulled towards that logic as well. I think what's fundamentally countercultural is also what's healing about psychotherapy. And that's the experience of being a self, a version of yourself that can come forward because of another person. <laughs> and that's the process of psychotherapy for me as well, or humanistic psychotherapy, is that we run up to, you know, I, it's hard to explain because our language is built in a culture that thinks about people as individual beings, but you have the experience of having thoughts or feelings or embodied sensations that you know are not just yours, that emerge in an intersubjective space to use like lingo that are there because the other person is contacting something within themselves that's powerful that you also feel. And they're also contacting that because of something that you're able to put into the room. Um, and you get to experience yourself as a, as a fully relational open being um, over time, you know, if, if a good psychotherapy process is allowed to unfold in all the constraints that we all face now in the work that we do. And I think that's what's fundamentally different is you get to be a different kind of self that our culture keeps trying to tell us we can't be. That idea of coming into different beings through others and with others is is definitely lacking, and it definitely connects with you know the values you're talking about, the underlying idea that I'm this contained self and I have to be like that. 
and I think it's 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 seductive. It's like it sounds easy when they say it, right? And, but it's so so difficult, and I want to acknowledge that um, to be to get to the edge of what you can be certain about about yourself and step over it for a second uh, to get over that cliff face because we're all under so many pressures to be consistent uh, from other people, um, from ourselves, because it's very, it requires a lot of energy and vulnerability um, to be open to being a different version of, to be becoming a different version of yourself. Or di being different versions in different contexts. Yeah. I wonder, I, you know, the minute we start thinking about multiple selves in psychology, we have the language of fragmentation. Right. Uh, and it's a very negative this thing, which and, and I wonder, like, if that's one of the reasons we are so terrified of psychosis, because one of the things we talk about is the fragmenting of self. Right. Which is immediately a negative thing. I think we need different types of stories. Um, and there are like I, I love finding a good piece of literature that captures a different way of being a self. And, and, and I increasingly seeing people who have other people inside them. <laughs> <laughs> um, or carry multiple selves with them or have their ancestors' voices in their head. And I think those kind of stories help us to think about what it means to carry multiple selves, what it means to to hear ourselves talk to ourselves from different places um, and different parts of our lives. Um, and hopefully those kinds of stories and being more open to those kinds of stories will help us think about think about ourselves differently. And with the ultimate goal, I think, of not just feeling better, which can be nice, but of being the kind of subjects that are unruly, that are ungovernable, <laughs> that, that don't fit neoliberalism, right? That don't fit capitalism. Like if we can become the kind of people for who our current society no longer makes sense, we, we, we're cogs that don't fit in the machine. I think that's, that's one of the goals uh, uh, of therapy and, uh, and of finding these new narratives and ways of thinking about ourselves. All right, Justin, that was, that was wonderful. Thank you for doing this with us. Oh, this was great fun. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.